we are starting a brand new series called Storytellers. And during this series, uh, what we want to do is we want to talk about what is perhaps one of the best stories in the Bible besides Jesus. And that is the story of Joseph. And uh, Joseph's story is absolutely incredible. It is filled with attempted murder, betrayal, intrigue, favoritism. I mean, just the stuff soap operas are made out of. And uh, so we're going to be looking at Joseph's story. And then we are going to hear from people from our church. We're going to hear real life stories uh, from people in our congregation about how they dealt with things that are very similar to what Joseph is going through. So we're glad you're here today. Well, here's what I know. We all love a good story. We, as kids, a lot of us were read a bedtime story, and we've heard stories all of our lives. A lot of them uh, said something like this, happily ever after, or once upon a time. And when we're kids, the stories always end so well, don't they? But in real life, sometimes our stories don't quite look like that. My little nephew, he is turning four today. Happy birthday, Garrett. Uh, I told him I would do that for him. But Garrett, he will occasionally come and spend the night with Uncle Andrew. And before Garrett can go to sleep at night, he, you have to tell him a, a bedtime story. And uh, it's not, uh, you know, it, one of the things I've learned is, uh, he says, Uncle Andrew, you're not doing it right. And so I talked to his parents. I said, I want to do this right. I want to nail this. So what do I need? What goes into this bedtime story? And his dad said, basically, he's happy. It doesn't matter what the story is as long as four main characters are present. Of course, mom and dad, mom and dad have to be in every story. Uh, Then there's his preschool teacher. And then you would think it would be Uncle Andrew. No, it's not. The fourth character that has to be present at every bedtime story is Chuck E. Cheese. And as long as as those four people are on an adventure every night, he is good to go. Scientists in Spain, they actually did some research, and here's what they discovered. They discovered that when we tell a story, that different parts of our brains light up, whether it's uh, an adventurous side, an emotional side, whatever, there are different parts of our brains that kind of fire whenever we experience different emotions. And so they did this study, and they hooked up not only the brains of the storytellers, but they hooked the, the machinery up and the testing capabilities to the people who were hearing the story. And here's what they discovered, that for those people who were hearing the story, this exact same parts of their brains lit up and fired whenever they heard uh, the speaker tell the story. That stories are so powerful, they can literally take us there. They can make it feel like we are there and we are part of that process. Stories are important in learning, too. How many of you have ever, maybe you were in a classroom or a lecture or a sermon, oh gosh, this one may hurt, and and you zoned out a little bit, okay? How many of you that's ever happened to? How many of you are zoned out right now? You would raise your hand, but you don't know what I'm talking about. Thank you. Okay, so let me just say, I love our pastor, and one of the reasons why I enjoy listening to him is because he keeps my attention. But sometimes we've been in that situation where we were in a learning environment and we just kind of were like, one light, two light, three light. You know, we kind of zone out there for a minute. 
The scientists discovered that most oftentimes, whenever your, uh, whenever your attention was refocused, whenever you got back to that speaker, oftentimes it was because they were telling a story. Stories are incredibly important. We know this not only because science tells us, but because of the example of Jesus. You know, Jesus is our master teacher. He is the example in everything. And one of the things that he did when he was on earth, one of the primary teaching tools that he used were parables. And so oftentimes when people would leave Jesus' company, when they would hear him teach, he would teach through this story. And a parable uh, might have been a made-up story, but it taught a real truth. And so what they would say is, man, there is nobody that teaches with the authority. There is nobody that teaches like this man teaches. I believe Jesus' ability to tell stories uh, were one of the primary reasons that he had flocks of people around him. He always had crowds of people. Of course, we know he was doing miracles and there were some amazing things going on in his ministry, but he told those stories and people wanted to hear them. They wanted to know what he was saying. Well, today we are going to pick up in Joseph's story, like I already said, we're going, to get, we're going to open up to Genesis chapter 37, and I want to kind of give you some background that you need to know, because uh, again, time is an issue here, but uh, <clears throat> Joseph's story is one of betrayal. Genesis chapter 37 opens up, and, jo and Joseph is a 17-year-old boy, he is figuring life out, and uh, and his story is a story of betrayal. Here's what I know. Betrayal hurts. For those of us in today, here today, and you've been betrayed, you know. That resonates more deeply with you than I could ever express. I know betrayal hurts because of its close relationship with trust. Think about that with me for a moment. We cannot be betrayed by someone we don't trust. Every betrayal we've endured in our life was, because of, was, was through the hands of a parent, a grandparent, a coach, maybe even a pastor. And I want to just tell you here today, I hope and pray that that is not the case. But we are human and you know what? If you stay at this church long enough and in this ministry long enough, I may let you down. You may have an expectation for me and I may not meet it. I can guarantee you Pastor Andy's going to let you down. <laughs> with me, it's only a chance, but with Pastor Andy, it's probable. <laughs> Betrayal and trust go hand in hand. One of the greatest stories of betrayal throughout all of history is the story of Julius Caesar. Uh, Julius Caesar, he was a dictator in the Roman world. And in 44 BC, he decides, you know what? I don't want to ever give up this power. And so he decides, I am going to name myself the dictator in perpetuity. And so basically, it don't matter what y'all say, I've made an executive order and I am the guy. And so uh, the senators, of course, they didn't like that. 
And they decide, you know what, we have got to do something about this guy. This can't go on. We've got to take him out. And so they devise this plan to assassinate Caesar. And one of the things they do is they got this guy named Brutus. Now, Brutus is a close friend of Caesar. He's a personal confidant of Caesar. And so they said, if we can get him on board, it won't look like a murder. It'll look like an overthrow. It'll look like we are all working together to overthrow this dictator who has let, who has let power go to his head a little too much. And so on, on excuse me, March 15th, the Ides of March, they decide we're going we're gonna to go on that day. We're going to assassinate him. So as he's coming up to the Senate, there's this guy, and let me, let me tell you his name right. <clears throat> Publius Servilus Casca Longus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he comes out first, and he goes, and he stabs Caesar. Well, Caesar, he is the original Rambo. And so he starts fighting men off and getting out, and he is fighting for his life, literally. And then something happens. He feels the cold sting of metal in his back. He turns around, and he sees, he realizes, it's Brutus. Here is my friend. Here is this guy who I thought I could trust. And so history tells us that at that point, when he saw Brutus, he resigned himself to his fate. He took his toga, pulled it over his face, and he let out these famous last words. And you, Brutus... You know, I can't help but to think that there may be some of us in here today who have endured a betrayal or a heartache, and it was by somebody that you trusted and you loved, and you never could have imagined that they would do something like that to you. And you had that, and you, mom, and you, fill in the blank for whoever your person is. And so that's Julius Caesar's famous last words. And you, Brutus, because he had been betrayed. Well, we go back to Genesis 37. And like I said, Joseph's story is one of betrayal. So Joseph, <clears throat> he was born 11 out of 12 boys. And basically, during these biblical times, what happened was the firstborn had the birthright. The firstborn was the blessed uh, child. He got you know, the, the lion's share of the attention and favoritism and those sorts of things. But it wasn't the case in Israel's household. Uh, see, Joseph's dad, Jacob and Israel, same guy, two different names. His name originally was Jacob. God changed his name to Israel. So Israel, uh, it wasn't like that in Israel's house. Israel, whenever Joseph was born, he said, this one is my favorite. Now, all of you parents know that is an absolutely horrible parenting strategy. But Israel had a favorite, and it was Joseph, and his brothers knew it. They could pick up on it. They knew that Israel, our dad, he loves Joseph more than us. And if it wasn't 
obvious enough with the favoritism, Israel decides, I'm going to make this special garment. I'm going to make this coat of many colors because I want my son every day when he sees himself, I want him to know that he is treasured and favored in his father's eyes. And so he makes them, him this coat of many colors. Well, not only did Joseph know that he was the favorite by having the coat, but it was a painful reminder to his brothers each and every day that as much as my dad may love me, he loves my brother more. And the Bible actually tells us in Genesis chapter 37, they couldn't handle it. The Bible says that they couldn't even say a nice word to Joseph. That's how much they detested him. And then Joseph begins to have some dreams. And and I'm just going to kind of summarize again because of time. But basically, Joseph has these two dreams. And in these dreams, uh, God makes it clear to him that you are blessed. You are favored. I'm going to use your life in an incredible way. And Joseph... I don't think he was being arrogant. I don't think he was uh, being braggadocious. I think he was just 17, and he just was so excited about what God was doing in his life and what God was speaking to him about his future. So Joseph shares those two dreams with his family. You can imagine how that went over. The Bible says that his brothers hated him all the more. You know, at first, my level of hatred for you was here. Then you had those two dreams, and now I really, really hate you. You know, whatever is above hate, that's basically where his brothers were at in their estimation of Joseph. And so we see here uh, that one day his dad sends Joseph out to the fields to check on his brothers. His brothers were out in the pasture with the flocks, and his dad says, go and check on them. Go see how the flocks are doing. And so Joseph, you know, willingly obliges. He does what his father says. Let's look at uh, verse 17, uh, the second part. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And look at this phrase right here. I believe this gives us a tremendous amount of insight into his brother's hatred for him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. You know, I know he's dad's favorite. I know God apparently has this big plan for Joseph's life. But you know what? I'm about tired of hearing that. So I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to take him out. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. We'll see what this dreamer can do when he's dead. The moment he got outside of his father's eye, his brothers allowed their jealousy and their hatred to hit this fever pitch. Now I want you to remember that earlier in Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you are going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to bless you. You won't even be able to count and number your descendants. I'm going to make you into a great, great nation. He was talking about these boys. 
These are the great-grandsons of Abraham. They are the sons of Israel. You know, as we go on and we read in the Bible, we know that Israel was a nation and that it had 12 tribes. Well, these 12 boys represent the 12 tribes. They are where the 12 tribes came from. But on this day, in a hillside in Dothan, they were like a lot of our families today. They were dysfunctional. And they made this decision that we are going to kill our brother. So the story kind of continues, and Reuben says, no, 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 let's not, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into one of these pits. Basically, the cistern is a well, and uh, this cistern in particular didn't have any water in it. So they literally throw Joseph into a pit. Well, then, uh, then later in Genesis, the brothers are talking to each other, and we find out a little behind-the-scenes information. They ha- they're having this candid uh, talk with each other. And in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, it tells us what the brothers were thinking and experiencing and hearing in that moment. We saw how distressed he was, Joseph, when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. Imagine with me, there's Joseph in the bottom of this pit. He's alone. He's helpless. He's crying out to his brothers. Help me, please. I'm so sorry. You guys got to forgive me. You got to help me. And they wouldn't do it. And the next thing we see is that here come these Ishmaelite traders. And they're coming through, and the brothers have this bright idea. Hey, you know what? If we kill him, we don't get anything for it. And you know what? He is our brother, so maybe we shouldn't kill him. Let's sell him. Let's go back home with a little money. We won't tell dad about it. And let's just sell our brother. So they sell him to these traders, and these traders take him down to Egypt. I want to preach what's going to happen next week, but I better not. Uh, You know, next week we're going to pick up and we're going to find out what happens at Joseph's next stop. But what I want to tell you is God uses Joseph in an incredible way in Egypt. God uh, does this amazing work through Joseph in Egypt. But Joseph would have never been in Egypt had it not been for this moment right here. So today, here's what I want all of us to remember. I want you guys to remember that the pit of betrayal can still produce the purposes of God. That no matter how dark our situation may look, no matter if we hit rock bottom, God can still use that bad situation. He can still use that dark time in our life for a purpose, for a reason. You know, we're, we're talking about stories during this series. And, and I think about how oftentimes something happens in our life. Maybe we get divorced. Maybe we are betrayed, whatever. And it becomes easy to kind of panic. 
And it becomes easy to isolate ourselves, to get away from uh, church, to get away from godly mentors in our life. And we pull back. And when we do, we almost just accept that, okay, this is my new life. And what happens is we put a period where God only puts a comma. God tells us there's more life to live. There's more to your story. Keep going. And so these people that do that, when we do that, what we do is we may still have breath in our lungs, but we no longer live our life. For Joseph, what he does is when he gets to Egypt, he had every right to be mad, to be angry, to, to not be willing to serve, to not be willing to do what his master there was asking him. Because in his mind, he knew he wasn't a slave. He knew his brothers had wronged him. But here's what we see. We see that the man who buys him, the, the gentleman who becomes his master, he sees Joseph working so hard. He sees God's favor on Joseph's life. He sees, uh, he sees God's power at work in Joseph's life. And he elevates him. Because when Joseph got to Egypt, he had the choice. Am I going to hold on to my hurt? Or am I going to hold on to my hope? And you know what? God gave me some dreams, and I don't know how they're going to work out. I don't see a way that can happen now. I'm a slave. I'm in a foreign land. I'm not around my brothers. I'm not around my parents. It seems like everything I knew was gone. But I'm going to hold on to this hope that God knows what he's doing in my life and that he gave me those dreams. So one of the things I don't want to be guilty of is I don't want to tell you guys, okay, don't let betrayal get you down. Keep moving. Keep going. Here's what happened in Joseph's life. And not give you some application. And not tell you, okay, so how do I do that? That's great, Andrew. I, thank you for telling me uh, what to do once I get betrayed. But how do I do that? I believe there are four steps. Four steps will help us go from betrayal to healthy. From holding on to our hurt to holding on to our hope. So let's look at those four things right now. The first, when we're betrayed, we have to grieve. We have to grieve. Don't, don't act like it's not important. Don't act like that thing that happened to you didn't hurt. Don't act like, uh, well, I don't even really care what that person says or what they did. No, if it hurts, just say it hurts, man. We have to be honest about the pain. So we grieve. But then once we grieve, we have to keep going. And the second step is to forgive. I know what you're thinking. Pastor Andrew, that is way easier for you to say than it is for us to do. I understand that. I understand as much as it hurts, refusing to forgive, it doesn't help us, it hurts us. We allow that betrayer to continue to have control over our life when we won't forgive. So when we're ready, we pray 
And we ask God to, to help us embrace and extend grace. And we forgive. So we grieve, we forgive. Third, we analyze. You know, when we've been betrayed, that's a good time to kind of step back and say, okay, am I trusting people too easily? What are the parameters with which they got in my life? How do I make sure that I don't open myself up to this kind of hurt again? Because I want to make sure I am putting up as many guardrails as possible to prevent this from happening. So we have to analyze. And then fourthly, and this is my favorite, we continue. We don't stay hurt forever. We realize that it's just a comma and we get to keep moving on. We cannot allow a betrayal to derail our entire lives. And you know what? Church, as much as it hurts for me to say this, it's absolutely true. There are always going to be betrayers in the mix. There are always people who, when we let them in, when we give them, uh, when we trust them and we let them into our lives, they may not have our best interests at heart. Here's what we have to do. We have to analyze, and once we've done that, we have to say, okay, you know what? If I'm going to live a healthy life, if I'm going to continue to be able to be, uh, to be emotionally healthy, I'm going to have to trust people again. And so we continue. We live our lives. We write our stories. So we continue. Well, one of the things I told you that we were going to do during the series is we don't just want to talk about Joseph and his life. We want to talk about uh, your stories. And so if you'll, uh, if you'll cast your eyes to the screen, uh, Miss Andrea wants to share her story with us. Hi, my name is Andrea. Growing up, I was raised in a Christian home. In fact, my dad was a minister. Uh, when I was in the middle of actually my second grade year of school, my dad accepted a job offer in West Texas um, in the town of Odessa. So we moved our family from a small town in Indiana to a barren, oil, dry-filled place in West Texas. And despite having to leave everything I knew behind, I loved our new home in Odessa. We were there for about a year and a half and um, at that time, my dad abruptly lost his job. Um, we were heartbroken, we were hurting, and not having any choice, my family had to move to Michigan and into my aunt and uncle's house. And that's when our lives flipped again. Um, just before Halloween, my grandmother, um, who was in her 70s, suffered um, a ruptured cyst that had been on her spine since birth. And overnight, she became paralyzed from the waist down. She was going to have to come home and needed a full-time caretaker. So my family moved in and my mom became that person. After several months of intense physical therapy, um, my grandmother was finally able to function from a wheelchair and was able to take care of herself. And it was then that the, another opportunity opened up in ministry for my dad and we were able to move on. 
A few years after we had moved from my grandparents' home, my mom um, had a conversation with me about that period of hurt and transition. She pointed out to me that if dad had not lost his job there, there would have been no one to care for grandma. Wasn't it a blessing, she said, that we had to go through that hurt so we could be there for our family. She didn't know at the time what had even happened to me in Texas. Our house sat in the middle of a block of homes that had a sidewalk in front of it. And behind it ran an alleyway where everyone's garages opened to. And so we'd pull in and um, greet our neighbors and see them across the way. And my parents even struck up a relationship with an older couple whose house was directly opposite of ours. Um, they were really sweet and kind of like grandparents type people for, and it was kind of cool for the seven-year-old girl who didn't who was away from grandparents. Um, the gentleman who lived there, we'd see him with his friends outside it where his shed was, um, working on cars and shooting the breeze. We'd say hello, he'd say hello, my, he'd help my dad fix um, his car. He even pumped air into my bike at one point in the tire. And um, you see, I loved my bike. My bike had was purple with one of those, those high handlebars, and it had that banana seat, and I would take it from the garage down the alleyway to the front of the house and do that loop over and over again. I loved riding it. Um, it was during one of those rides that I stopped and talked with this man. I mean, after all, I was a polite kid. My mom had told me it was, you know, to speak when I was spoken to, and um, I'd seen them speak with him, and I had no worries in stopping to talk with him. Um, but it was in the course of that brief time there that this grandparent-like figure um, inappropriately touched and kissed me. As soon as he let me go, I ran. I jumped back on my bike. I rode away and I never rode in that alleyway again. I never told my parents. They had no idea what their little girl had suffered or the trauma that I had gone through. I remember after this incident had happened that my parents had pulled into the garage and were conversing and he was out there and they were saying hello and talking with him. And I remember I stayed in the background and prayed I would just go unnoticed. Nobody would notice me. They wouldn't call me forward to speak with him. To this day, I don't remember that man's name or remember his face. And when we left Odessa, I never saw him again. But it was years before I could voice what had happened. As an adult looking back, um, I can see how God wove that horrible experience into a redeemed story of his love and blessing. When my mom spoke to me about the firing being a blessing, um, my dad's firing being a blessing, it planted a seed of truth in my heart. That fruit of that truth being that, yes, God's provision through that firing was for our family, but it was also a rescue. It was a rescue for a scared little girl. It was a rescue for me. I just want to say thank you to Andrea. I, uh, I really appreciate her being willing to share her story. Statistics tell us that one out of every four children <laughs> endure that kind of pain right there. And I pray to God that in this auditorium, it is filled with the three out of four. I pray you never had to endure that. 
But if you did, that is one of the most horrific betrayals I can imagine. That as an innocent child, somebody you trusted betrayed you in such a horrific way. What I want you to know is that just like Andrea and just like Joseph, that no matter what kind of pain you've gone through, that God can still use that. And he can use it for his glory. When I spoke with Andrea earlier this week, she was excited that her story might help people, but she was also tearful because she had to remember the things that had happened to her. I know it's hard, but God can still use even our deepest hurts. I want to look back at Joseph's life really quickly and and wrap this thing up. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, we see the last conversation that Joseph has with his brothers. These brothers that hurt him and betrayed him and that he never even knew he would see again. He was reunited with them, and here is what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Here's what's so awesome about God. Intended evil can become eventual good in God's hands. They intended it for evil. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Even when people intend evil on us, God can use it for our eventual good. If we will keep sight of the fact that the pit of betrayal, that pit in our life, whatever it is, that it can still produce the purposes of God. Let me pray for you.